This episode of Market Foolery is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Not a fan of being surprised by hidden fees? Well, at TD Ameritrade, they charge just one straightforward price and give you everything you need to trade. No hidden fees. No surprises. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash pricing. Member SIPC. It's Monday, August 19th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me in studio today, to kick off the week, is Abby Mallon. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk WeWork, mm-hmm. because everyone wow. in our office, and seemingly in the financial media, can't seem to stop talking about WeWork. So, we're going to join in that conversation. We're also going to dip into the full mailbag. Let's start, though, with a company I think we've talked about maybe once or twice before in all the years we've been doing this show, and that's Estee Lauder. And looking at what Estee Lauder is doing, it seems like a stock we should be following more closely, because shares are up 9% today, hitting a new all-time high. Fourth quarter results for Estee Lauder look good, and their guidance for the new fiscal year were also pretty impressive. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, sales were up 9%. Um, This is known to be a pretty conservative management team, so anytime they tend to be Pretty bullish. Everyone tends to take notice because you know they tend to outperform that. So definitely worth watching. So is the so for those unfamiliar, I mean Estee Lauder, all manner of cosmetics, skincare, more uh, than twenty five prestige brands across one hundred and fifty countries and territories. Wow, Huge. I didn't I didn't realize the footprint was that big. Yeah, um, a company that we do talk about in this space is Ulta Salon. Yeah, Estee. Is it safe to assume that clearly I'm showing my ignorance here? Uh, Safe to assume that Estee Lauder is selling into Ulta Salon, so yes. it's one of those things where it's like they they are retailer agnostic. True. So, is this a stock that has ever been on your radar? I, I was we were chatting right before we started uh, taping, and I realized this is this has never been recommended in any. I don't think it's ever been recommended in any service that the Motley Fool has, and it's the stock's just been a monster, particularly the last few years. It has. I mean, I think it's a really interesting company. I think um, I I talk about LVMH a lot. I like following that company. What it's is that name? LVMH. Okay. Um, it's a French conglomerate. So it's Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy. So oh, they right. own like a bunch of the um, very high end fashion, food, and um, makeup beauty products. I think this is a really interesting company. I'm surprised it actually doesn't get more traction. I think. Um, Everyone acknowledges that there's a lot of growth in this beauty space and within beauty, particularly in skincare, um, and then also within the Chinese region or Asia Pacific more um, broadly. But I just I think this is one that has been missed a lot by analysts around here, and I would like to see it covered in more places. It just doesn't really fit into where I tend to look. Uh, last thing before we move on, you mentioned the management being pretty conservative. All things being equal, is that something you prefer to see as an analyst? Management just being con- conservative, even if it's just in terms of their guidance. I think they are conservative because they're so um, geopolitically diverse that they have a lot of risks that they're always taking into account. Um, I think anytime the market comes to expect something, you're going to see a surprise at one point or another. This time it was to the upside. I think um, there's probably a reason that they're conservative, and there's probably going to be some time that they're going to miss. So um, when you set market expectations, it's always a little bit hard. But with that being said, I think conservative management in this business makes a lot of sense. So when I think about the end of 2019, 
uh, and on Motley Fool Money, we'll do a, an episode where we sort of look back at the year and what are the dominant storylines. I think it's safe to say that one of the <laughs> dominant storylines of 2019 is going to be the IPOs. Because coming into this year, we knew not only are we going to have some high profile IPOs, we knew that they were going to be essentially front loaded to the first half of the year because there was concern among not just the companies themselves, but also amongst the uh, sort of the venture capital uh, folks that were taking them public. Hey, we want to peak valuations. Yeah, we're at peak valuations. Let's get out in the market. So, you know. Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, Slack, Pinterest, Zoom, and now we've got WeWork. <laughs> and I, I'm curious what you think because I, I think we're now at the end. I think the the WeWork IPO, if they in fact go public in September, and that is reportedly what they are targeting, I think that's going to be it basically for IPOs for 2019 because I have never seen such negative coverage about a company getting. To go public, yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of multifaceted in this case. Like um, something really <laughs> funny. So I think it was Bill Mann, but it might have been Tom Gardner. Someone around the office coined this the "We Won't Work" company. Um, so they're talking about coming public at almost a fifty billion dollar valuation. So um, I think we've seen this happen with Uber and with Lyft and with you know some of the other ones that have already come public. But I think when you're talking about numbers that big. A lot of the growth and the potential and the runway has already sort of been used, right? So investors aren't necessarily feeling like they're getting in at the ground level. This is just sort of a late stage. Um, so for one case, I think that's just a little bit unattractive on the size perspective. The second thing here, um, they raised 11.8 billion in cumulative debt and equity funding, according to Crunchbase data. So it's actually one of the most well-funded private companies in the market ever. Um, and so when you think about what's behind that, that's a ton of venture capital money. That's I mean, that alone in and of itself is saying something. That's bigger than most companies tend to even come public historically. So um, there's a lot at stake here. And I think layering on top of that, the business is a little bit flawed, right? So um, in 2018, revenues were about 1.8 billion, and they had a loss of 1.6 billion. So, I, th- I mean, there's something to be said for um, using capital while you have it and spurring growth. But I don't think that real estate is necessarily quite the market that um, these founders would want you to believe it is. Add in the fact that, as we talk about from time to time, uh, when a company files to go public and they're pulling together their S1 filing for the SEC. They are doing it with the mindset of we got to make our numbers look as good as, good as, as possible. As good as possible. Yeah. So for whatever one thinks about WeWork, just know this is WeWork's public document saying this is as good as it gets right now. Right. And there are a lot of people, including folks like you, yeah. who are looking at this and saying, "Really, this is as good as it gets?" Because this isn't very good. And then throw in on top of that, the uh, the management team. It's a little. And. The fact that there are going to be three share classes right out of the gate. And I think you can go with multiple share classes when you're a proven business, when you have proven leadership. And I mean, Snapchat did it too. And I think they also got a little bit of flack for it. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Including on this show. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah. <laughs> that we worked in didn't invent You don't this. necessarily need to be a proven business. That's is true. my point in bringing that up. Good point. I would say, 
the thing that's actually pretty jaw dropping in this case, even in comparison to like Snapchat, which I would say is, you know, had similar questions when they came public, um, similar sort of management friction. Although I would say this is much more grounded in um, numbers and facts than the Snapchat concerns were. But um, so WeWork has three three share classes, as you mentioned, and the B and C class is essentially all owned by Adam Newman, or primarily, and CEO. Yes, CEO, founder, CEO, and those shares give him twenty votes per share, so that gives him more than fifty percent of the total voting power. So, in comparison, a lot of other um, dual or even triple class structures, those shares have about ten votes per share. So he actually doubled the power in each share, which, I, as a shareholder and as a you know, you want to have a voice, and well, maybe as a retail investor, you don't expect to have a huge voice. I think. There's a clear, strong message with that, right? Like he's this is his business, and he's running it the way he's going to want to run it. Uh, Dylan Lewis uh, said this on last Friday's Industry Focus when they were talking about WeWork, and I'm going to say the same thing. Um, we're not trying to like hate on them. I'm just as someone who watches the financial media, I'm marveling at the overwhelming <laughs> negative response to this filing. And so, by all means, if anyone listening has a strong bull case. For why they think this is an IPO worth buying into, or just the business in general, please well, email us marketfoolery at fool com because I've I yet mean, to I see it. I think we need to. I think we have to give credit where credit is due, right? So this is an inventive um, idea. I think the idea of renting space the way that they've presented it actually makes a lot of sense for the for a lot of startups, a lot of small businesses, a lot of um, you know, like I think this is a, a cool concept, and I think you know they really. Pioneered it, or at least they get credit for bringing it to the main stage. I just don't know that this business with this leadership team is um, the best execution of it. It sounds like a not with my money situation. Yeah, like I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't hope against them, but I just I struggle to see, like even with Uber, where I was like a little bit negative, I felt like there was optionality there, and I still feel like there's. Potential with a couple aspects of that business. With this one, I feel like maybe even less clarity on how exactly we make this. Quick shout out to TD Ameritrade. There is no ROI on TMI, and that's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you, curated from their vast library of exclusive content. It customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com slash education, member SIPC. Our email address, as I mentioned, is marketfoolery at fool.com. Great question from Baiju Meta in Santa Ana, California. He writes, I have two girls, ages 8 and 10. I primarily invest in passive index funds. My two girls are not super interested in investing or stocks. We've talked about it, and we tell them, that we are investing for college, but it's not something they ask much about. I use index funds because they are cheap and easy, and I don't have the time to research individual stocks. How do I explain that to children and get them excited about it? I mean, even for adults, they're pretty boring investments. <laughs> Boy, he's right about that. Um, do you think the way you should teach your kids about investing should differ between boys and girls? I would love to hear Emily Flippin's response to this as a millennial female. Thanks for all you do. Uh, thanks for a great question. I've got another millennial female here in the studio with me, uh, in Abby Mallon. Um, I, I, lo I love the recognition that index funds, being 
a wonderful investment vehicle that we love here at The Motley Fool and always have for the low cost, for the diverse diversification that you get, and the recognition that, yeah, that's incredibly boring. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the idea of an index fund at age eight is going to, you know, get you super excited. But I do think the idea that, um, you know, the idea of compounding interest and the idea that saving today can lead to interesting or increased purchasing power in the future is really the fundamental reason why people invest, right? So, um, whether that's an investment in individual equities, index funds, or even bonds. So, um, I think for kids. Particularly, you really want to teach that concept. So start on a micro level with just one company, talking about um, how you build wealth by investing in this one share today because it will be worth more in the future. And then I think once they grasp the idea of opportunity, I would sort of teach the second hand, which is risk. So learning one's own risk tolerance and then balancing that risk and rewards opportunity is really the name of the game. So um, I think the sooner you get kids thinking about both big opportunities and big downsides, you can kind of get them a little bit more excited. So, I want to come back to the companies in just a second, but yeah. what do you think of his second question? Because, I, you know, as someone with two daughters and one son, the way I've talked to my kids about investing has not differed uh, among them. Um, but we were talking before we started taping, and you had a different take. Not yeah. necessarily that you should teach differently boys versus girls, but sort of how we're in the environment that we're in. Right. I mean, I think this question is probably stemming because when you look at the job market, there are so many fewer females in these financial roles in comparison to men. And I think um, that's due to a couple reasons. The first is that finance is math-based, and research shows that girls start to doubt themselves in math and science-based subjects by middle school. Um, and I think there's a lot of initiatives being made to correct this inherent bias. But the second is that finance and stock markets and equity analysis um, these in particular subjects sort of require a level of conviction that girls societally are not taught the same way that we teach boys. So um, there's this really interesting book called Deborah. Tan it's by Deborah Tannen, and it's called Talking Nine to Five, and it's about how um, girls are socialized to present ideas differently than men. And but long story short, I think the research shows that women are actually better investors because they tend to be less reactive and hold through turbulent times. And so what that says to me is that women are more confident in the ideas after they pick them. It just takes a little bit longer and more research um, for them to get there in comparison to men, generally speaking. So um, I think if you want to get girls invested, I think you need to tackle both of those problems. And I think that comes down to a confidence issue. So, teaching your girls that it's okay to be wrong. Um, here's how you do good research. Here's how you build conviction. Here's, you know, everyone makes mistakes and um, giving them sort of the leeway to do that, specifically targeted towards those um, gendered issues, maybe. Every investor makes mistakes. Every so, investor makes so, mistakes. Yeah. Um, you know, to go back to the companies, I think that to get my experience, I know Jason Moser has talked about this as well. Um, my experience in investing with my kids is finding something they're already interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, once you start to look at, well, what are, you know, if your kids are interested in sports or video games or you know or whatever, chances are there's a public company Definitely. that is making the products and services that they use every day or that they they and their friends are talking about. Interact with. And so that so I'm not saying, hey, dump the index funds, go all <laughs> in on individual stocks based on what your eight year old says, but you know, maybe take 
I don't know, fifty bucks, a hundred bucks, buy a couple of shares of a single company. Yeah, and let the, I think let teaching the girls what's in that index fund because index is a weird finance term, anyways. That is a little bit general, but if they understand, like you know, Nike's in the index fund, and um, Mattel is in the index fund, and McDonald's is in that index fund, maybe it gets a little bit more curiosity. Abby Mallon, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.